Hi, I'm Isabel Allen and this is 80 Conversations. I'm talking today to Zoe Berman, who's an architect and the founder of Part W, a campaigning collective focused on combating gender inequality within the built environment. My second guest is Pooja Agrawal, an architect and the CEO of Public Practice, and also the co-founder of the diversity platform Sound Advice. We're talking today about the issue of gender inequality within the construction industry and diversity generally. And we're also talking about the various ways in which both Zoe and Pooja are working to bring about positive change. Zoe, I'm going to kick off with you. Can you quickly explain what's wrong with the profession as it is at the moment and why change is needed? So I think that the fact that a number of groups have sprung up really in, in the last few years and sort of the, the more groups that have established themselves is indicative of the fact that there are various intersectional groups who are not being supported, recognised and helped by sort of formal institutions um, within the built environment and, and architecture. And I think that then also feeds into the need for there to be greater recognition and support by by the industry and by employers. Um, So you have these fantastic groups like um, Built by Us, the Migrants Bureau and the Urbanistas and Architecture LGBTQ plus and and so on, which I think indicates that there there is a real need for, for greater support of diverse needs. And that has a, you know, there's a kind of a positive opportunity to that, to us creating an industry that is much richer, much diverse, much more varied, that these groups of which Part W is is one, and obviously Sound Advice is doing absolutely amazing work, that these groups have come about, I think, it really kind of in, in some ways sort of answers the question of there being need there being a desire to to do more to do better and that is both a a challenge and also an opportunity. Pooja you obviously um, are are one of these groups or represent one of these groups that Zoe's referencing Um, can you tell us quickly first of all about sound advice and what what made you set that up? The sound advice sort of came into being kind of accidentally. We were first asked by the new architectural writers to do a piece for the after party zine to address diversity. And uh, Joseph Zale Henry and I used to work together at the GLA and quite often found ourselves being asked to talk about diversity, something that in a way we weren't that sure we really wanted to talk about publicly given the sort of connotations that come with it, but also quite often being pigeonholed as diversity experts. We are clients, we are housing experts, we are design experts, we, you know, started social enterprises, yet people wanted to ask us about diversity. So um, we did a kind of tongue-in-cheek piece actually addressed to other people of colour within the architecture industry, thinking about um sort of taking a bit of a sense of humour and uh, being a bit provocative about how to address these issues. And basically, we linked it to music as another sort of point of reference, a cultural reference, really thinking about how can we talk about diversity in the wider realms of it not being necessarily academic, uh, where people sort of roll their eyes and think, oh, God, they're talking about this again. So it just sort of came into being 
in that form. And since then, it's sort of grown into its own movement where we sort of link provocative statements and slogans with content, whether it's uh, media on a podcast versus we've just um, published a book and always link that to a music, to a song and really explore the issues through those through that lens. I'm interested, though, in you saying you, you didn't want to be pigeonholed. And um, I had a conversation with Michael Badu, the architect, about a year ago. And I remember him saying, you know, all well, white kids grow up and they want to be lawyers or they want to be builders or they want to be architects, whatever it is. And um, black kids grow up and if they're ambitious, they want to be an activist and they want to be an architect or they want to be, you know, they, they, they kind of almost assume that they have to take on that added role as a spokesperson. Um, I mean, is that a, a kind of weight of responsibility you feel somebody who isn't white and is operating in a predominantly white profession? Absolutely. It's it's almost a duty that we perform. And, you know, we look at our colleagues and I think, understandably, people take very, very different approaches to it. Some people really publicly advocate for it. Some people... Um, work behind the scenes whether it be through mentoring or through changing policy one of the things I did at the GLA was work on um, on the kind of policy side of things Uh, but it you know it is absolutely quite a big emotional burden and it's a lot to ask of different people to to share these experiences and I think a year ago when Blackout Tuesday happened suddenly a number of friends and colleagues were being asked to come and speak about their experiences, something that perhaps people have been trying to talk about for a really long time. Yet suddenly there was a platform to sort of almost uh, exploit perhaps people's tears and emotions. And um, it was in fact at that moment that Joseph and I were having this sort of WhatsApp conversation when Blackout Tuesday happened saying, hold on, this is a really, really easy response. It's so neutral, you're basically saying nothing. And at that point, we knew lots of friends and colleagues were really hurting. And that's when actually the book Now You Know came into being, was gathering all of this, this kind of raw response from people in the industry who are feeling lots of different things. And and sort of they all came to us with all of this incredible response, whether it's in essays or poems. And actually, almost the point of this book, Joseph and I say, I mean, it's called Now You Know. The point is, if you read this book, you don't need to ask us to talk about diversity and inclusion anymore. We're just going to get on with our day jobs. Well, that, yeah, that's a very kind of interesting aim, isn't it, of almost just being able to kind of forget it and get on with your day jobs. And I suppose, Zoe, if I bring this back to the the issue of gender, I mean, what do you say to women who sort of say, look, I kind of know it's important, but you know what? I'm building my own career. I've got my own stuff to get on with. And actually, why should I have to take on an additional battle just because I'm female? And it's really, really interesting there that you that you frame that from a woman's point of view, because one of the things that we find within Part W and I think a lot of other groups who are working within this sphere um, alongside and hand in hand with us is that particularly when talking about gender, that, of course, much of the discussion that we need to be having is is with men. This is AT Conversations. You can listen to the back catalogue at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. That's an ongoing challenge. It's something certainly that we see, um, you know, at kind of events, discussions about design, architecture and gender equity 
as soon as you say gender equality, it tends to be that it's women who turn up. And and I think you know that would fold through when we're talking about issues of, of, of race in a very similar way. I think that it's very, very problematic that the burden of labour, of expectation to make change when it comes to gender tends to be put into the hands of, of women to find the solutions, propose the solutions and do the work. That is actually, you know, is incredibly frustrating because women don't generally lead on being sexist, um, mm. you know, discriminating against other women. So getting men in, you know, in the, absolutely, you know, with into the conversation is, is essential. I think something else just to kind of con- continue on, on something that you, you kind of both of you have noted is, is this issue of, again, of free labour, of the expectancy that those who are in some way already struggling with, um, with forms of discrimination are also expected to come up with the solutions. Uh, two brilliant Leslies, Leslie Kern, Leslie Loco, both of them um, in, in their discussions and in their writing refer to this real issue that so many, and, and you know, just from the point of view of, of gender, that so many women are expected to do their, do their job. And then also on top of that, also to then be writing policy on, you know, sort of a, a practices, EDI issues, um, uh, equality, diversity and in- inclusivity, to be doing that as well. And something that I think we really, really need to gear shift about the way in which within the architectural and built environment industry is the way in which we value the importance of those conversations being had and the solutions being developed to recognize that there's a there are deep values and also economic values to practices from doing really really well on this and so i think there needs to be a kind of a a a a flipping of the way in which we think about issues around edi as being seen as being not just a good and worthy thing to do, but actually fundamentally makes organisations, practices much more stable, much more resilient and economically more sound. And that's not just my personal opinion, but the data is all there, that when you have organisations that are run very equally and very fairly and where you have women working happily throughout an organization at all different levels those those organizations are more profitable so there's you know whichever way you kind of cut the cake there's reasons for doing this you know kind of whatever your politics is you know because you believe in it passionately or because you know the it, it plays out in economic terms that's a that is about all genders needing to have this conversation and all addressing addressing the issue together let me first of all pick up on something that Pooja said about the kind of, you know, suddenly there was a moment when there seemed to be a, an appetite to hear from people who were usually or had previously been very much underrepresented or fighting for a platform. What is the ideal way forward? I'm speaking now as an editor, and obviously I commission things all the time, and more to the point, I invite speakers to events and webinars. And often, often, often we look at lineups and just think, hang on, it's all male, it's all white, we don't want it. 
Um, now, is the best approach, I tend to be brutally honest, and I don't know if that's the right thing to do or not. Quite often we'll phone people saying, yeah, we think your work's really interesting. And also, frankly, I need a woman on this panel. <laughs> Am I doing the right thing? Is it better to be a bit frank and honest that you're trying to go for the, these numbers? Or is that actually a little bit annoying and demeaning? I think different people will have a different response to that. People have argue about things that, you know, like tokenism. Some people think it's a positive thing. Some people think it's a negative thing. So I don't think there's ever a very obvious way how to do this. I, I think when it becomes problematic, if it is only one person of colour or there's only one w- woman seat there and it's almost like, oh, sorry, we can't have you and the other woman of colour on the same panel because there's only one seat for you. So why is it that there's only one seat there in the first place? And that's what I would sort of ask. Um, As a rule, I never say yes to doing a talk or an event if I'm given a few days notice because I'm like, "Hmm, interesting, why has this come, you know, at this point? So I think different people, and and that took me a while to create Mm. my own rules as a way to sort of, you know, manage my own mental health and capacity, you know, I'm really busy. I don't have, yeah. you know, I'm not going to deal with your problem because you didn't think about this a month ago. So I think it's just you, you, being kind of pluralistic, thinking that actually the diversity of thought and experience is a valid enough um, point of view on a panel that it's not about ticking a box. And I think that's where that's the kind of difference that's made if it's not just one seat at the table yeah I think it's really difficult isn't it because certainly when I first um started out in journalism I I I just lost count of the number of juries and panels and god knows what that you know I was invited to as you say quite often the day before and always I was the only woman um always without fail and I absolutely was torn between being a little bit insulted and then thinking, well, at least somebody looked at the last minute and thought we got to do something about it. And I don't want to discourage that and making it a kind of point I wanted to turn up. But of course, the corollary of that is I would turn up maybe a bit unprepared and feel like I did myself down. I think going back to this economic argument that Zoe brought up, it's one thing saying all the data is there and Another thing which is looking at why that data is not accepted or understood, what can be done or what should be done to actually very, very clearly communicate the argument that it's not just about doing the right thing, that a diverse and inclusive workforce is actually economically and commercially a positive thing. Part of that is that we are in a real moment of change of that data starting to be read, written about, recognised. So yes, the data has been out there for a long time, but it's only very, very recently that I think people are starting to spotlight the data and talk about it and shift towards seeing it, it as being something that is important. You're listening to 80 Conversations with me, Isabel Allen. The back catalogue is available at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcast. What that kind of indicates is us being in a period of change. We are in a moment of shift and that is societal and cultural. And, you know, there have been seminal books like Caroline Criado Perez's 
Invisible Woman, you know, which is a book that got a huge amount of traction. It has a section about place and planning, but it also talks much, you know, really it's, it's a much broader book that presents the data that when you then read a book like that, I mean, the data just becomes irrefutable. I think what we are shifting in is that it's not that that information hasn't been around, it's that actually it's starting to be acknowledged as being something that is important. And I think in, you know, in the wider built environment sector, I think it's, it's starting to, there's actually starting to be a push bottom up and top down. There is much more, yes, there's much more activism. And I think there is far more of a recognition at at higher levels within organisations that this is this is an issue that has not been taken seriously, should have been, and we are well behind. You know, the construction industry is way behind on diversity and inclusivity. And I think there's now a scramble to do better. And you see big organisations like, you know, it's very, very telling that a construction company like Lang O'Rourke, you know, big international company, that they recently made an announcement on seeking to achieve gender parity and carbon zero. They put that in the same press statement. And I think what's really interesting and positive there is starting to, to think about this these intersectional, intersecting issues that we can't just silo talking about sustainability over here and race over there and gender in another corner, because that just creates sort of silos and, and separate conversations. And I think it's it's exciting that that's starting to be recognised by some of the the big you know the big companies. And actually, when you have developers starting to recognize really this that they're in terms of investment ESG so environmental sustainable governance um, that they are looking to invest against quite high ESG bar you know then that then the change is coming I think the problem and the change you know is, is sort of starting to happen right now I think the problem that we're seeing then as a flip side of that is the knee-jerk reaction with under-thought-through policy that people aren't given time, that policy isn't being really developed with care and with real thought. And I think that's a risk, is that we need change fast, but we also need time to think. It's really useful, actually, to get that kind of snapshot of the progress and, and agenda that the private sector are now running with, I'm curious to know from your experience whether you feel that the public sector are still leading on this agenda or actually being left behind a little bit. Sure. So public practice is a social enterprise that I co-founded in 2017 and have recently become the CEO of. It's a not-for-profit organisation that places people with diverse skills around the built environment into public sector for a year placement. And our, our, our fundamental mission is to improve the quality and equality of everyday places. And in fact, what Zoe was talking here about the kind of the slow and the fast really, really got me thinking about 
the role that the public sector plays in in that kind of stewardship, in the opportunity to really think about policy in the long term, but also having quite significant tools, whether it's policy or actual capital, to actually influence this change. So two sides to this, you know, we're talking about really fundamental issues about how we live post-COVID. You know, we're talking about public space and gender equality. We're talking about, you know, sustainability, environmental impact. For me, this all comes down to place. And, you know, what we see often is people with this spatial background expertise are not influencing the conversations around these fundamental societal issues. I mean, take Grenfell, for example. So what public practice is really doing is bringing these diversity of skills and architecture and design are one of those skills, but we actually have people from all sorts of backgrounds, including construction and infrastructure and sustainability expertise. And actually you bring all of these people together to solve these fundamental problems with councils saying, you know, we're going to be net zero. Our associates are working on these agendas on the ground. And that what that's what makes public practice really special is that we're actually solving these issues on the ground. And I would say actually the public sector are really leading the way because they have that sort of opportunity to think in the longer term, but also take action on the ground. They know their local communities. Saying that, going back to the question around who is it that actually makes the public sector, what we're trying to do is make sure that people we put in these placements are representative of the communities they serve and we think really really carefully about how we design our programs so we we go through quite a significant recruitment process to sort of shortlist people we get over hundreds and hundreds of applications every round and we are extraordinary team with their diverse backgrounds have come and really shaped the way we do this process so for example we have group exercises where you know people tend to be think that the loudest you speak you know the more successful you'll be but actually we're sort of testing soft skills like humility and saying actually that's really really important in terms of the types of skills we think we need to put into the public sector and to date we've been quite successful in terms of beating the industry average I mean that's not really hard but you know you take gender for example we had 63% of associates who identifies women and one percent that identifies non-binary which is significantly above planning construction architecture and any of those skills we've talked about so far but we're, we're always trying to improve and again touching on the data point we're really we really gather that data at every stage and talk about it as a team because, you know, there's always so much more room for improvement. Pooja Agrawal and Zoe Berman, thank you so much for everything you're doing to make the profession a more interesting and inclusive place. And thank you so much as well for joining me today. You've been listening to 80 Conversations with me, Isabel Allen. You can subscribe free of charge at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts.